Okay, so here's the question. How do you know, how do you know if you know God? How do you know if you know God? Maybe some of you, I know, think about this question a lot. This maybe has even been a question that haunts you or something that you've thought about for a long time. Some of you maybe don't ever think about this question. It's just something that you assume. But how do you know if you know God? We test many other things in our life. We take driving tests or if there's different certifications in our work, we we take tests for those. We take tests in school. But often, we don't really look at the most important test of all, which is how do we know if we know God? That's an important question. It's the most important question. How do you know if you know God? And as we get into this, what John is going to say, and we're going through the the letter here of 1 John, what John's going to say is that there's a specific test that we can look at to see if we know God. And even just asking this question, how do you know if you know God, just asking that question brings up some important truths that, that, that are highlighted. The first is this, that it's possible, and we've talked about this before, but it is possible to believe that you know God, to believe that you're a Christian, and to not be one. That's a possibility. I mean, that's just the first thing out there. There's billions of people in in the world that would say, I know God, I'm a Christian, I, I know who God is. And John would say, well, not necessarily. How do you know if you know God? The second truth that this brings up is that it's possible to be sure that we do know God. That's what's called the doctrine of assurance, that we can know if we know God. You don't have to wait till the end of your life and you open your eyes and is there fire or you know, do you see streets of gold and your grandma? You, you can know, you can know, all grandmas go to heaven, right? I mean, isn't that just something people know? I mean, you can know, you can know if you know God. And the third thing that this question brings up, just to begin with, is that it's something that can be specifically tested. It's not just, well, hey... You can know if you know God, and if you say you know God, great, and no one can tell you otherwise. It's something that can be specifically tested. And I've asked people this question for many years in different contexts. How do you know that you're a Christian? That's a question I've asked many different times to people. And sometimes people are just offended by that, and sometimes just confused or perplexed. Like, what what do you even mean? I, I don't even get the question. Because if I were to ask you, hey, are you a Democrat or a Republican? And you, you gave me the answer of which you are. And I said, well, how do you know you are? That wouldn't really make sense. You would say, I know I am because I said I am. Or if you said, um, you know, if I asked you, hey, do you believe the Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl? And if you're a good Denver citizen, then you would say, yes, of course I do. But if I said, well, how do you know you believe that? Not how do you know they're going to win, which they are, but how do you know if you believe that? How do you know if you believe I mean, that? doesn't even make sense. Well, I know I believe it because I believe it. I mean, that's why when surveys and polls go out, what, what they ask is, you know, do you believe in God? And there's never a follow-up that says, well, how do you know if you believe in God? Because all of that underlies an assumption that what it means to be a Christian is to have a certain set of activities or it's something you kind of self-choose to believe, but it's not, it's not actually getting at the fact that it's this relationship But John here is saying, how do you know if you know God? And when I've asked people that question, sometimes you get uh, kind of four different responses that I've gotten. And one of them is, well, I know that I'm a Christian, if people do even answer that. I know that I'm a Christian because I did things in the past. So maybe I said a prayer, or I grew up in church, or there's kind of an I did things aspect to it. Or it's, I do Christian things. I pray, I read the Bible, I go to church, I serve, I tithe, whatever it might be, that I do Christian things. Or it might be, I believe things. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe Jesus died on the cross, I believe in what the Bible teaches. Or maybe it's, I feel things. I just kind of know, I just feel that I'm a Christian. But all of those, all of those, John says, don't get at the heart of the issue that there's a specific test that we can look at to see if we know God. And as we talk about this, as we talk about this question of how do we know if we know God, I hope that this can serve in a few different ways. I hope it can serve you personally, that if maybe you really need to ask yourself, do I know God? It can serve as an assessment of, of where you are. 
It can also serve you relationally in different relationships you have. Maybe there's people you go to for counsel or for encouragement or for wisdom, and they say they know God, but do they really know God? It can serve you in that way, and it can also serve you just as kind of a diagnostic. Maybe, maybe you do know God, but to look at the test of how we know if we know God, it can also be helpful to look at the tests of areas in our life that we need to grow. Okay, So this is what we're going to get into. What is it that John says is the test? And we're going to be looking at First uh, John chapter 2, verses 3 through 14, and we're going to look at different sections. But here's the first section of what John says the test is. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So what's the test? John says the test is obedience. And I've never, I mean, when I've asked people this question of how do you know if you know God, I, I mean, I've never, I've never heard someone give that answer. I've never heard someone say, well, I know I know God because I obey. That might sound kind of similar to I do things, but really when that answer is given, it's usually I do a specific set of Christian things, a specific set of religious activities. It's not I live, I know I know I, I know I know God because I live my life governed by him. I live my life under his authority. I live my life following what he says. And we don't like that word obedience. I, I mean, honestly, I don't like that word. I mean, when I said the answer to the test is obedience, I mean, no one clapped or cheered or said, yes, a sermon on obedience. This is what I was hoping. It, I mean, the mood in the room drops, you know, like 20 percentage points when it's like, hey, we're going to talk about obedience. Arms get crossed a little bit tighter. Brow gets furrowed a little bit, you know, thicker. I mean, it's, people don't like obedience, even the name obedience. It's like, uh, do you have, is there somebody in your life maybe? that you don't even like to know their na- hear their name? Maybe it's someone in your past, or I know some of you are pregnant or have had kids, and it's like maybe you like a name that you want to name a baby, and it's, but then your spouse is like, well, uh, that name, that guy, or uh, that name, I got beat up by this guy, or that name. I mean, you don't, you, you can't even stand the name. Or maybe it's someone right now that's like, hey, just so you know, Jenny is going to be at that meeting. And you're just hearing the name is just like, ah, it's just poison. You know, you don't even want to hear the name. That's how obedience sometimes is with us. We don't even want to hear the name. It's like, hey, just so you know, obedience is going to be at that party this weekend. And you're just like, oh, just the name. You know, I'm staying home this weekend. And we don't like obedience. We don't even like the word, okay? Because this is what obedience is. Obedience is a willingness to go against your will. Obedience is a willingness to go against your will, to have some authority outside of you govern how you live, to have some authority outside of you that you submit to. It's a willingness to go against what you think is right, especially what you feel is right. It's a willingness to go against that for, from something outside of you. That's what obedience is. So we don't like that. And, and let, me, let me tell you this in the physical world of how, how we do this. Because we understand this physically. I mean, when Monday morning comes around, tomorrow morning, your alarm goes off. And it sounds, I mean, even saying that, I know I'm sorry that I even bring that up. Like, let's just put Monday out of our mind. I mean, it just sounds like the voice of the devil himself when your alarm goes off, right? At least for me. I mean, maybe you were morning people and, you know. You wake the birds up by your singing. I don't know. But, I mean, when my alarm goes off, everything in me, it feels right to stay in bed. I mean, it feels right. My body feels like I should stay asleep. And, if, and it, I mean, some of you put your phone, you know, in a different part of the room. That way you have to force yourself to actually get up and go get it. My wife sets two, like two or three alarms because she knows she's not going to wake up with the first one. Sorry to call you out. <clears throat> I would too, but she, she wakes me up instead. But there's, I mean, we, we feel right to stay in bed, but we go against our will because we know there's something that we have to do instead. Or think about eating. Many of us have done South Beach diet or, um, the Jared Subway diet or paleo or, I mean, Atkins or whatever. I mean, or maybe no diet at all, but we just know we can't eat whatever's in front of us. 
we feels right to have more chips and salsa and keep bringing the next basket and keep bringing the next. I mean, that feels right. feels right to just eat whatever you want. Your body says, I want that. It feels right. But you go against your will or exercise, right? And if you exercise, you're going against what feels right in your body. Some of you exercise regularly, and when you're done exercising, you have a runner's high, or, or you, um, you know, got that endorphin rush, and it feels good afterwards. But in the moment, it doesn't feel good. I mean, if you're lifting weights, you're literally breaking down your muscles. And it, it, it hurts. It brings pain. And I know some of you, it's like, oh, yes, it hurts so good, and, and you know, it feels good. And, but it's still... Your body is not saying, this feels good to me. That's why, if you're really serious about it, hire someone to be a personal trainer that even helps you go beyond what your will is. They help you to do eight reps instead of six reps. They help you to run an extra minute, to to keep pushing, to keep going, to go past what your will is. Okay, We understand this physically. Obedience is when you move that into the moral realm. Obedience is when you move that into the spiritual realm. And we don't like that. We don't understand that. We get the concept physically. But in America, you know, the great sin, the great sin is not being true to yourself, not doing what feels right to you. That's like the one great sin is if you do what isn't following your heart or if you do what isn't feeling right to you. That's don't do that. Do whatever else you want, but be true to you. Be true to what feels right to you. But if we did that physically, we would we would die. We did that physically, we would die. I mean, some of you know that the bane of my existence is I'm gluten intolerant. And I can't eat gluten, which basically gluten is bread and everything wonderful in life. Pizza and pasta and donuts. I mean, it's all that good stuff. And I take a lot of trips to the South for a training program that I'm in. And in the South, I mean, that's, it's just one giant state you know, land of gluten. That's all it is. I mean, everything is, everything is either deep fried or comes with a biscuit. I mean, that's it. I mean, everything. I mean, you go to Taco Bell and you order tacos and you get a biscuit with it. I mean, it's just like everything, carnitas, oh, and a biscuit. Here you go. And everything's fried. Fried chicken, fried okra, fried salad. I mean, really, even the vegetables are fried. You can't get vegetables in the South without them being fried. I mean, when they've got like the line, I don't know if you've been to the South, but all these places, they've got like a cafeteria line. Oh, there's a veggie. I see something green. And it's like, oh, what's that on top of it? Oh, it's fried onions and, and cream of mushroom. And it's going to be shoved in a biscuit. And everything is, everything is gluten. And I want to eat it. It feels right to me to eat that. It feels good and holy and beautiful to eat tons of fried chicken. It does. I want to do that. It feels right. It all, you also know, some of you know, I love donuts. And it feels right to eat donuts. It feels right to eat a lot of donuts. And I don't know, I think Patrick was the first person that told me about this, but then I, I saw it, and I try to stay up on donut news and things. Um, you think I'm joking, which is really funny, but um, I try to stay up to date on that. But do you know that they've got this new thing that's called, I think it's new, it's called a cronut? Okay. You know what this is? This is a croissant and a donut combined. A cronut. And I don't know, first of all, I don't know why it took so long to invent this, because this just seems intuitive that like two wonderful things should be married and come together. It's a match made in heaven. But, I mean, I want to eat a cronut every day. I mean, I do. It feels right to me. It feels right. But if I did, I would die. So instead, I eat rice crackers. And that doesn't quite do the same thing. But the, uh, oh man, I could talk about donuts and cronuts forever. Um, but here's the thing. In the, in the moral world... We will die as well as in the physical world if we don't go against our will. And we get that more, we get that physically, but we don't get it, we don't get it morally. And John is going to tell us that it's going against your will. It's a willingness to go against your will that is a test of if you know God. That obedience is a test of if you know God. And before we jump into what he's going to say, I want to highlight something really, really, really important. Because whenever any talk of obedience is done in the church, there's something I've got to make sure you understand. Okay? Because here's what often we think about obedience. We think that obedience leads us into relationship with God. But John says here that obedience is a test. It's evidence of if we do know God. So picture God at the center here, okay? 
And what many times we believe, or many times what, what Christianity, you might even hear this in the church, it's not supposed to be taught in the church, but you may hear this, and really every other religion, every other system of thinking teaches this. It teaches that here is God in the center, and in order to get to God, we need to be obedient. So if you want to enter into relationship with God, be obedient. If you want to be accepted by God, be obedient. If you want to be approved by God, be obedient. Sometimes this is said popularly in, uh, you know, I need to work my way to heaven, or hey, when, I'm de- when I die, as long as I'm good enough, you know, I'll get in. As long as I've done the right things, as long as I've followed the right rules, as long as I've done the right stuff, then God will accept me. Then he'll bring me into relationship with himself. But Christianity says the opposite. The gospel says the opposite. It says that because we've been accepted by God, because we've been approved by God, because God has brought us into relationship with himself, then we obey. Obedience doesn't precede relationship with God. Obedience follows relationship with God. It's not, obedience is not the entry gate to get into relationship with God. It's what happens after you have relationship with God. And if, and if you do it the other way, it le- I mean, those lead to entirely different kinds of lives. Because if you operate on that first idea that, okay, obedience is what will get me into relationship with God, it's how I have right standing with God, it's how I get accepted by God, if that's how you operate, it ends in either pride or despair. And I talk about this a lot because it's really important. It will end in pride because you'll say, I've done everything I'm supposed to do, so now God owes me. Now God's in my debt. Maybe you don't actually say those words, but that's how you look at life. You feel like God owes you because you've been a good person. That's why a lot of times we say, man, why do bad things happen to good people? Because they've lived a good life, so doesn't God owe them a certain kind of life now? Or it leads in despair because you believe if I do these right things, that's how I know I'm a good person. That's how I know I've got good standing with God. But you're not doing the right things. And then it just feels like, ah, I'm a failure. I'm a nothing. But the other way leads to a life of graciousness and love and humility where you understand first God's accepted you, he's loved you, he's approved of you, so we obey. Okay, I've got to put that out just in front because we're going to talk about obedience today and that's a really important thing to keep in mind, that obedience is a test, it's an evidence, it's not the access to get into relationship with God. Okay, so let's look at the test of obedience because this is what John's going to say. John's going to tell us that obedience is a test, and he's going to give us three ways that we obey, that test in our lives if we know him. He's going to give us three different ways that move from kind of a broader um, approach to more specific. So he'll start with, and I'll just give you the three of them right now, and then we'll get into them. He's going to start with, broadly, we obey God's commandments, we obey by living like Jesus, and we obey by loving one another. Okay, so the first is this, and John already said this, um, but he says we obey his commandments. We obey his commandments. And that's referring to everything that God says in here. It's referring to God's word, John says. It's referring to the scriptures. It's referring to the Bible. It's referring to everything that God speaks in the Bible, that we obey God's commandments. And immediately when something like that is said, there's a natural objection that comes up. There's a natural objection that comes up that says you can't really be serious. We, don't, we can't obey everything in the Bible, right? I mean, aren't there some good things and some bad things? Aren't there some things that were for then but not for now? Aren't there some things that we have to kind of change with the times on? And there's some outdated things and some better things now? And we can't really be serious that we obey everything that the Bible says. I mean, doesn't everybody cherry pick and pick, okay, I'll do these things and not these things. And a lot of times Christians are called inconsistent because they say, man, the Bible teaches this. But then it's like, well, yeah, but you're, not, you're eating shrimp or you're doing this. Or, and, and that's a natural objection that comes up when you talk about obeying God's commandments. But John says, no, we obey all of God's commandments. So let me explain, let me explain what the Bible is because really that objection of cherry picking or inconsistency is a misunderstanding of what kind of book the Bible is. See, if you look at the Bible and you think that it's a rule book, if you think that this is a rule book, then the best thing to do, the best thing to do, here's, here's what you should do if you, if you think the Bible's a rule book. You should open it up, get a whiteboard or a chalkboard or whatever kind of writing surface you want, and write down everything that it says to do and write down everything it says not to do. Write it all down. 
Maybe turn it into an iPhone app and carry it around with you and check every day if you're doing the right things and not doing the wrong things and have it buzz if you're doing the wrong things. I mean, that, that would be the best approach to take. Be to write all the rules down and do the ones and not do the other ones. And if you look at the Bible as a rule book, it is natural. I understand, I sympathize, I empathize with the understanding that it would be cherry-picking. Because what would happen is, if you look at people's actual lives, you would say, well, you're doing everything in column A, but not column B. You're doing 1 through 20, but not 30 through 40. I don't understand. But that's a misunderstanding of what kind of book the Bible is. Because the Bible is not a rule book. It's got rules in it, but it's not an ethical textbook. That's not what it is. The Bible is a story. The Bible is a story. See, the Bible begins with God creates the world, and he says it's all good, and he makes man and woman, and it's perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with the world. But then they turn their backs on him. They walk away from him. The Bible calls that the fall. They reject him. They ignore him. And ever since then, we we do that same thing. We ignore God or reject God or just kind of live our lives apart from God. And the whole story of the Bible is of God redeeming his people, bringing them back into right relationship with himself. That the end of the story is that one day God's going to restore everything. That it will be reconciled relationships with each other, with the world, with him. The Bible calls that shalom, which is a word that kind of means peace and wholeness. That one day everything will be set right. And, and Jesus is the one that in the Bible they call the Messiah and the Savior. That He's, he's the hero of the story that's going to set everything right and bring everything back into right relationship with God. So the Bible's a story. And if you understand the Bible to be a story then it makes sense that there's going to be characters and plot lines and themes and progression and movement and the natural story structure of rising action and falling action and climax and denouement and conclusion and all of those pieces of a story. It makes sense that it's going to have those different progressions and as Jesus is the central character, that when he's there, that, that life changes, the chapters move on and things begin to change. So let me explain how this happens. A lot of the things that people object to of inconsistency is in the Old Testament. So, for example, there's many things in the Old Testament having to do with the sacrificial system. That sin, the Bible teaches, requires death. It requires blood. And so there's all these different rules governing how to sacrifice, when to sacrifice, where to sacrifice, what animals to use in sacrifice, all these different things. But when Jesus comes, the Bible teaches, because the story is leading up to him, It's a story about God setting things right. When Jesus comes, the Bible teaches he's now the sacrifice. That he pays the debt for sin. That his blood is shed for sin. So we don't have this whole sacrificial system anymore because Jesus changes that. Or take a lot of the things in the Bible that have to do with ceremonial worship and cleanliness. So there's a lot of things in the Old Testament, many of the laws that you've heard of, of don't eat this unclean thing, or don't touch this unclean thing, or don't be around this unclean thing, or, or even about two different types of fabrics, and you can't have two things that kind of blend together. Because all of that has to do with coming to, approaching God, pure, clean, ceremonially pure and holy. But when Jesus comes... When Jesus comes, the way that we approach God in worship is no longer through those things. It's through Jesus. And when Jesus comes, as we talked about last week, that Jesus is the one that cleans us, that Jesus is the one that purifies us, that Jesus is the one that makes us holy. So all of those things change now. It's not that God doesn't care about cleanliness and holiness and purity of heart anymore, but those things are different in Jesus. So... What happens is it changes the way we worship. It doesn't change the way we live. So God's moral will, what God says is right and wrong, is still the same. But when Jesus comes, things change in him. So why? So that's just kind of a, an understanding of there's not inconsistency when John says, obey God's commandments. So why does this test if we know him? Why does obedience to God's commands test if we know him? Because... Obedience shows what you believe about a person. You understand that? I mean, if you go to the doctor and he says, I want you to take these pills, you're going to take them, right? Why? Why would you take those pills? 
You'll take him because you believe he's had the right education and training. He knows what he's talking about. He's smart. You'll take him because you believe he's a doctor. He's taken an oath. He's, he wants your good. And you'll take him because you, you, you believe he actually has the power to help you. He's not just saying, ah, you know, eat this screwdriver. I mean, he actually knows how to help you and what to do to, to cause change in your life. I've got a really weird doctor, sorry, that example. No, I'm just kidding. But, but if, you're, if you're out just in the street, if you're downtown Denver and a white van pulls up and a guy jumps out and walks up to you and says, here, take these pills, what are you going to do? Well, don't honestly answer that if it's, oh, I'm going to take them. But it's, I mean, it's, you're going to say, no, I don't even know you. Why would I take those pills? I don't even know who you are. See, obedience shows what you believe about a person. It shows if you believe they're good, if they care for you, if they're wise, if they know what they're talking about. So that's why it's a test if, if you actually have a relationship with someone, because it shows what you believe about them. That's why John says that if you disobey, that the truth is not in you. It might be kind of around you. You might have some exposure to it. It might be on you, but it's not in you. It hasn't actually gotten inside and mixed with your DNA and become a part of you. I mean, think about if you're, de- you're dehydrated and it's a hot, sunny day and you're outside. Maybe you just did a workout and you're sweating and you're just like, you know, you're panting. And someone hands you an ice-cold glass of water. Now, what can you do with that water? Well, you could take that water and just dump it on your head, which would feel good. It would feel refreshing. You would reap some of the benefits of that. But it won't actually change you unless it gets inside of you. It won't change actually what's happening inside your body unless you become hydrated and let the water get inside of you. John says the truth is not in you if you, don't, if you disobey. It shows that you don't actually know God. It hasn't gotten inside of you. That's why John doesn't say, if you're disobeying, what you need to do is obey. Obey, obey. That's not what he says. He says, if you're disobeying, you're lazy. I mean, that's not what he says. He says, if you're disobeying, you need to go back to the root because it shows the truth hasn't gotten inside of you. You don't know God. So, obedience is a test because it shows what you believe about a person. It's also a test because depth of relationship always comes through giving up your will. So if you look at the Bible and you say, look, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, but I really just can't say that this is God's word and everything in here. I really can't do that. There's some good things, there's some bad things, but I can't say that, man, this is God's word, that every piece of it I need to obey. I just, I just can't do that. If, if that's where you're at, you can't really have a personal relationship with God. Because a personal relationship always comes through being willing to go against your will. Because as soon as you look at the Bible and you say, look, there's some good things in here and there's some bad things in here. What you're doing is appealing to a source of authority outside of the Bible, ultimately yourself. You're saying there's some standard of morality that I'm judging this by. There's some standard that I'm appealing to by which I'm judging which pages are good and which pages are bad. See, either the Bible is going to judge and evaluate you and your opinions, or you will judge and evaluate the Bible and its opinions. I mean, there's only one way or the other. You come to the Bible, and if you say, I'll do these things and not these things. If it feels right to me, I believe it's God's will. But if it doesn't feel right to me, if it goes against my moral intuition, then, then I'm not going to do it. it. It must not be really God's will. Then as soon as that happens... You can't really have a personal relationship with God because you have to have a willingness to have someone go against your will to have a depth of relationship. This is why one of the most you know, common things that people say about not wanting to get into a relationship is, I mean, what, what's one of the most common things people say of, ah, oh, I don't want to get into a dating relationship or a marriage? It's a fear of commitment. That's a self-professed thing that people say, like, ah, fear of commitment, which means a fear of having someone else go against your will. Because the deeper you get in relationship, the deeper, com- the deeper committed you are, the more that you give somebody permission to go against your will. And the paradox of that, though, is that as you get deeper and deeper into relationship, you want to give up your will. I mean, we say things like, you know, I'll do, I- I'm yours and you're mine. Or if you ever watched Princess Bride, you know, the way that the, the lead character in that, the way he said, I love you, was as you wish, right? Your will can go against my will, was even how he said, I love you. 
Because depth of relationship always happens when we allow someone else to go against our will. So obedience is a test of if we actually have that depth of relationship. So here's what I want to do, because those are some general things. But I want to look specifically with you. Because as I preach, I mean, I can only really give broad things. I mean, if we're sitting down one-on-one, I can get more into things. But, but I want you to, if you've got a piece of paper, you can write something down. If you've got your iPhone or something like that, you can write it down. But I want to ask you a question. And as I ask that, if the Holy Spirit brings things to mind, I want you to consider this question. What is it that God is asking you to do that you're not doing? And maybe, that's, maybe that has come through a sermon Maybe it's come through time in community group. Maybe it's come through just conviction that you have. Maybe it's come through reading the Bible or, or through other things. But what is it that God is asking you to do that you're not doing? And even more specifically, I'm going to read some of these to just stir some stuff up in you. And you might need to go home and think about this more. Or, or maybe right now, I mean, really the Holy Spirit will bring something to mind. But let me just read through a few questions to help you think through this. So what has God asked you to do? that you're not doing because you don't want to. Maybe it's just plain and simple. Like, I just don't want to do that. Or because you're scared of what might happen. What's God asked you to do that the reason you're not doing it is because you're scared of what might happen. Or you're scared of maybe what people will think. Or you know it will be hard. God's asking you to do something, but you're not doing it because you know it will be hard. Or you don't think it'll work. You just don't think it's going to work. Or you don't see how it makes sense. God's asking you to do something, but you just don't see how it makes sense. Or you say you already did it. Or you, don't, you say you don't have time. I don't have time to do that. God's asking me to do that, but I don't have time to do it. Or maybe you say I don't have money to do that. Or maybe you say I don't know how to do that. Or I don't know where to start in doing that. Or, lastly, maybe you'd say something like, I'm just not like that. I'm just not that kind of person. And all of those, all of those, all of those come from you making a choice to say, I'm going to govern my life. I'm going to govern my life, and I'm not going to allow God to go against my will. If it feels right to me, I'll do it. If it feels wrong to me, I won't do it. But you're not allowing God to speak into your life and go, you know what? Even though it feels wrong to me, God says it's right. Or even though it feels right to me, God says it's wrong. Or even though God says to do it, I just don't think he really knows what he's talking about. And just so you know, obedience is not the same thing as agreement. See, obedience only happens when you think something's a dumb idea. When you say, I don't think I should do that but I'm going to go against my will. But all of these things, all of these things, unless you allow God to speak into your life in the particulars, in the particulars of obedience, unless you allow him to speak into your life in the particulars, then the only God you'll really have a depth of relationship with is yourself. You won't really be able to have a personal relationship with God unless you allow God to speak into your life in such a way that you go against your own will. So that's the first thing that John says, that we obey. We obey his commandments. And here's the second part of the text. This is what John says. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, that's Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John says the next part is that we obey by walking like Jesus. We obey by walking like Jesus. Now why is this a test? Because, I mean, it doesn't literally mean, hey, put on your sandals and you know, get the right stride down like Jesus had. When we talk about walking, you know, we talk about a walk of life or walk the walk and talk the talk. I mean, it's, it means a way of life. So think about walking with me for a moment. Think about walking, okay? What happens when you walk? Why is this a test? Because it's all-encompassing. When you walk, it takes every part of you. You have to think, where am I going to walk? So you use your, your mind, you use your beliefs, you, you have to actually desire to go somewhere. I mean, that's the engine that kicks it off in the first place. I, I want to go somewhere. And you actually have to take steps. You actually have 
to move. Walking is an all-encompassing thing, right? It involves your head, it involves your heart, it involves your hands. It's an all-encompassing thing. And some of us might say, well, you know, I, I believe the right things, or I feel the right things, or I do the right things, but walking includes all of that. That's why it's a test, because you can't kind of section off one part of your life and say, well, you know, this, this, is, this is all good, but, but I, I'm going to do the right things, but, you know, I don't really need to believe the right things. Or, you know, I'll, I'll love people, and I feel love in my heart towards them, but I don't, I don't actually want to do anything. But walking is an all-encompassing thing that includes our head, our heart, our hands, our emotions, our actions, our beliefs. It includes everything. So it's a good test. It's a good test because it doesn't let anyone off the hook. It's not just the easy things or the things that fit into your schedule naturally or the natural bent that you have. Secondly, walking like Jesus is a test because Jesus shows us God perfectly. It's not just obey God's commands in general. It's when you look at Jesus' life, how does that compare to your life? Because Jesus obeyed God perfectly. Because he knew God perfectly. He was in perfect relationship with himself. So if you want to test, do I know God? Don't compare your life to just some abstract idea of what it means to obey God. Look at, look at Jesus and say, how, how does my life look in the mirror to his life? Of what he did, of what he was about, of what his mission was, of who he talked to, of, of what he says, of how he lives, of who he hangs out with, of his whole approach with people and with life. What does it look like in comparison to that? See, it's a good test because Jesus shows us God perfectly. Is your life more and more resembling Jesus's? And and it's also a good test because John says that life with Jesus, walking like Jesus comes from abiding in him, which means living in relationship with him. So it's not just these religious principles to follow. It's that the only way you could walk like Jesus is if you actually have a relationship with him. If you actually are engaged in an active, ongoing relationship. That's why it's talking about walking like Jesus. The only way you can walk like Jesus is if you're walking with Jesus. This is even thinking through the grid of morality of what's right and wrong through the idea of, okay, if Jesus is walking with me, Would I do this? Jesus is walking with me. Would I say this, wear this, talk like this, think this? If Jesus is walking with me, how does that begin to change things? Okay. Finally, here's how John says we obey. This is the last section of what John says we obey in. So we obey God's commands generally. We obey by walking like Jesus And we obey by loving one another. Here's what he says. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So, John says, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John says we obey by loving one another. We obey by loving one another. This is the most specific of them. And nobody thinks they hate somebody, right? I mean, most people don't say, I'm a hateful person. But hate can be actually harming somebody. It can be wanting harm to to come to somebody. But it can also just be a passive indifference where you don't care what happens to somebody. And John says that our love for one another is a test because, here's why it's a test, because love is a sign of being in a whole new reality. It's a sign that you're in a whole new reality. The light is what John calls it. Which means you see everything through what Jesus has done for you. You see all of life through the lens of what Jesus has done. I mean, if if you believe, I'm a sinner, and Jesus saved me out of grace... If you believe that God accepts me and approves of me, not because of anything I've done, but just because of his grace and his love in Jesus. If you believe that, man, I had no relationship with God, but Jesus brought me into relationship with God. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He brings me new life. If you believe that, then all of your life is affected by that. 
And love is what overflows out of that. Because you've been given the greatest love there is, then every part of your life begins to be seen through that lens. And love is a test because it shows that you're living in a whole new reality where your life is connected to what Jesus has done for you. Love is also a test because it's all-encompassing. It doesn't just include your, your, your attitude, and it doesn't just include your actions. It includes both of those. So love is action. Sometimes people say, oh, I love you, and they don't do anything. Well, love is all-encompassing. It's actions, but it's also your attitude. Sometimes people defend the Christian faith in such a way that they're a total jerk. And the whole heart that they approach it in is unloving and shows, man, you're, you're denying the very faith you're defending by your attitude of unlovingness when there's the Savior that came in pure grace and love. So love is all-encompassing. It's actions and attitudes, so it's a good test. And finally, love is a good test because... It shows if we have God's heart for his family. See, the Bible here talks about God as a father and then calls us brothers. See, if God is your father, if, you've really, if you really know God, then God's your father, which means that everybody else in God's family is your brother and your sister. So if your reactions, if your interactions with them are marked by hostility or indifference, then that shows you're not really in his family because if he was really your father, then you would love the other people in the family, the other brothers and sisters. So it's, love is a good test because it shows if you have God's heart for his family. That's why, we, man, that's why the church is not just an educational seminar. It's a community of people. It's a family. And yeah, it's got you know, crazy uncles and weird people in it, but it's a family. And that's why we care about community group that we do on Tuesday nights. Because that's a time that we come together and we're trying to build and work on becoming a family. Like every family, it's dysfunctional, but it's, it's a family. And sometimes we want to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, me and God, we're great. But our relationships with other people in God's family are not great. Our relationships with other people in God's family, there's, there's not reconciliation, there's not forgiveness, there's not honesty, there's not, there's not love. Maybe there's just not time spent at all with them or superficial, or whatever. But John says that one of the ways we know we're part of God's family, one of, the ways we know, one of the ways we know if we know God is if we're acting like a family member, that we're loving the other people in the family. So, John says we obey God, generally obeying his commandments, specifically walking like Jesus, and more specifically by loving one another. This is how we test if we know God. But here's the next section. This is the last section we'll look at. He says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, he repeats, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So here's what happens, and here's what I feel even right now. John talks about obedience, and he says, Obey God's commands, live a life like Jesus, love people, and he lays it all out there. And what happens, and maybe you're feeling this even right now, is we can feel discouraged. Like, man, how can I ever live up to that? Obey God's, all of God's commands, live like Jesus. Oh, man, I've got to measure my life up to Jesus. Love people. And it can feel weighty. It can feel burdensome. And John's a pastor. And he loves people and he cares for people. He calls them beloved. He's not a bad guy. He's a good guy. And, and this is what he says. He says, look, let me just give you some reminders. Let me give you some encouragement. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear this in the context of everything we just said about obedience. Because obedience is important. It shows, do we know God? It's a test that we need to look at in our lives. It's a way to assess where we are spiritually. But John ends with kind of this parenthetical statement before he jumps into the next section. I think to encourage the people not to just feel weighted down. And so here's four truths that he says in there, because he kind of repeats himself through there. But here's what he says. The first is this, that the spiritual life is a process. He says that there's children and there's young people, and there's parents. It's a process. 
So if you look at your life and you're like, man, I'm not there. I'm not there. That's okay. It's okay. Keep going. Keep growing. Take baby steps, one in front of the other. Just keep going. Don't, don't get discouraged that you're a teenager. Don't get discouraged that you're a baby. Just one step in front of the other. Keep going. That just like life, just like physical life, spiritual life is a process of maturing. It's not one size fits all. It's not, hey, everybody needs to be right here, right now. It's a process of growth. And John addresses these different groups in there. The second thing he says is this, your sins are forgiven. See, whenever we talk about obedience, it's easy to go right back to what I said in the beginning, where it's, okay, I got to obey. If I want to be right with God, I got to obey. But John wants to remind us, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So what that means is, look, you're, look I can, I'll just, let me, let me be a, a fortune teller. This week you're going to disobey. This week you will disobey. And John wants to remind you, your sins are forgiven. Past tense, because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's not something you have to earn. It's not something you have to to work your way up to. Your sins are forgiven. The ones you've already done and the ones you will do. Your sins are forgiven. So that means the weight is taken off of obedience having to be this thing where we're trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn God's approval. The weight is taken off of that and now we can obey because we're free. We can obey because we already know the way that God looks at us is in Jesus. We already know that the way that God sees us is because of Jesus. So you're free to now obey without all the pressure and the, the, I'm trying to work my way up to be a good person. And you're going to fail and you're going to mess up. But John says, your sins are forgiven. Let's talk about obedience. But your sins are forgiven. Breathe. Breathe. And third thing that John says is this. You've, you can change. You've overcome the evil one. You've overcome the evil one. Might not feel like that. But because of what Jesus did on the cross... You have overcome the evil one and you have the power that he has put within you, the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, to change. That when you look at certain areas in your life that you're like, this is never going to change. This is always going to be like this. Nope. That's wrong. John says you've overcome the evil one. And God has put his word within you, his power within you to bring about change. And the last thing John says is you get a person. You've known him who's from the beginning. You've known him who's from the beginning. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of what John says. Remember, obedience is a test. It's evidence. And John says, how do we know that we know him? How do we know we know him? Because obedience flows out of a relationship with God that we have. We get a relationship with God, John wants to remind us. You get to know him. You get to be in relationship with him. That's what John wants us to make sure we get that the whole point of all of this, that the reason it's all worth it, that the reason we need to press on, that the reason that you engage in relationship with God ongoingly through, through Bible and prayer is, is you get to have a relationship with him. You've known him who's from the beginning, he reminds, that you get to know God. That's the whole point of, of all of this is, is you get to know God and, and you, get to, you get to know him. If you don't know him, if you look at your life and you go, man, I I don't know him. I failed the tests. Great. Then come to know him today. Come to know him today. And then start that process of spiritual maturity. You're a baby today. Great. Congratulations. Here's your diaper. I mean, it's, it's great. Grow. Grow. Become a baby. But the whole point of all of it is you get to know God. And if you already know him, then he wants to remind you that you get this relationship with him and through obedience, is through giving up your will, through a willingness to give up your will, is how the depth in that relationship happens. And we're going to take communion. And communion is where we remember all of that. Communion is where we remember what I said earlier, which is that God has accepted us, he's approved of us because of Jesus. Jesus gave us communion as an ordinance to do, he says. And in it, we take the bread, which represents his body broken, and wine or juice, which represents his blood shed. 
to show us you get a relationship with God, your sins are forgiven, I've defeated the evil one on the cross on your behalf. I mean, that's, it's such a rich thing that we get to do here, to remember all of that, to remember that we, we don't have to obey to be accepted by God, but that God came in Jesus to give us himself, that we're accepted, and now we can live in obedience. So when we come to take communion, remember that. And if you look at areas in your life where you say, man, I do know God, but man, there's some areas in my life that I need to grow in. Great, great. That's awesome. Praise God that he showed that to you. And talk to him about that when we take communion. And we'll also take our offering. And the reason we do that is because we want more and more people to enjoy a relationship with God. We want more and more people in the city to enjoy a relationship with God, to have their sins forgiven, to to truly come to know God. And it's an act of worship that we do that because we say, man, God is good and, and I enjoy God and I want other people to know God. And so we give to see that continue to be able to happen. Okay? If you're not a Christian, don't give. That's something that, that we do as Christians as an act of worship. So let me pray for our offering and for communion. God, I thank you that, thank you that, uh, that the gospel is so different. The gospel is so different that you don't tell us that we have to earn relationship with you. But instead... You give us relationship undeservedly, and then we get to obey out of that. Thank you that it's so different. Thank you that, that you came to earth, that you died and lived and resurrected for us so that we could enjoy relationship with you. I pray for everyone in this room, God. I pray that if people in here don't know you, they'd come to know you. And I pray, Lord, for those of us that do know you, that we would obey so that we would have a depth of relationship with you, that we would give up our will in the area that we don't want to do it in, that we would give up our will to press deeper into relationship with you, to come to know you in a greater way. I pray, Lord, that you would speak peace and forgiveness and love to everyone in here, and that out of that, we would live obedient lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.